So this is the part of the podcast where the Duchess is out of the room and she doesn't know that I'm recording. So we can make fun of her as much as we want to. (laughs) Gene. That's ridiculous. All right, let's see what she says. We're not going to tell her the microphones are on. Let's see what happens when we replace her show notes with pages from a Danielle Steele novel. Welcome to my dungeon. It's very foolish to lock oneself into a wardrobe. I'm not recording yet. You haven't read that one. No, I don't know what you're talking about. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Did you ever actually read the book? Never heard of it. Um, Somebody read it to me when I was a kid. I remember having it read to me as a child and thinking it was magical. You don't like the digs? It's... It's unpop- an unpopular opinion, but I love that book. Oh, man. Why is that unpopular? Last one in the studio gets the wobbly mic. Ah. <laughs> yep. That's how. Oh. oh. Damn it. Oh, I'll rearrange it. Hold on. I, I mean, I can adjust. <laughs> Just not going to be able to double fist my beverages. <laughs> you, have, you have coffee and a Capri Sun? It's hot cocoa. Oh. Extra marshmallows. <laughs> You're such a badass. I put the snare drum over by you. <laughs> just so you're... Oh, we'll see what happens. You got to hit it hard for it to come across the mic. That's what she said. <laughs> what was she we in? We should be recording. What was she into? <laughs> Why would she say something like that? <laughs> how how did your uh, paper go today? <sighs> I mean, it's going to be what it's going to be. Mm. Gotcha. So, I've been recording this whole time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I heard you <laughs> <laughs> talking to yourself down here. <laughs> it's kind of a giveaway. I'm sorry. Did that ruin it? No, not we really. We can go back. I didn't really intend. What? Oh my God. What? You bastard. <laughs> how could you do this to me? Did you talk about how dirty it is down here? Well, I have not the set the lengths st- that we're going to to podcast. I have not set the stage, no. I our 12 year old is having a sleepover, and thus we are banished to our unfinished, really dirty basement. It's uh, No, it's dirty. It's, no, it's, it's gross. It's pretty dirty. Nasty. <laughs> no, I mean,. I've lived in worse places in college. I'm taking a picture. <laughs> Not of me, I hope. Just of behind you. Oh, okay. I think you should take a picture behind you. <laughs> oh, God, it's even grosser over it's, there. It's definitely grosser over there. <laughs> That's the corner of the basement I don't like to, I, don't, I like to pretend doesn't exist. 
Here it is. You're going to get our podcast recording set up? Our studio. <laughs> you taking a video? Yes. <laughs> 360 degrees. Oh, it's going to make everyone sick. There he is. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome to the dirty, dirty Duke and Duchess podcast. This is the dirty edition. That's right. Down in the dungeon. <laughs> this is the dungeon edition of the Duke and Duchess podcast. So welcome. We've got one, ready. one half of the Dungeons and Dragons. Where's so, it? Somebody promised me a goddamn dragon. I, I wouldn't say that too loud. Oh, good point. We might summon a dragon. We might. There are a couple of preteens upstairs. Anything is possible. It's episode 32, and we are discussing The Lies of Loch Lamora by Scott Lynch. Today we're talking about the interlude titled Loch Stays for Dinner and chapter three, which is titled Imaginary Men. Next week, we are going to talk about the interlude, which is called The Last Mistake and chapter four, at the count of Kappa Barsavi. See, I like how you're so professional because I'm super professional. I was just like, it's the interlude between those two chapters, and then that chapter. And then I wonder why people are like, did I read the right section? I'm like, <laughs> how could I have been any more clear? I don't know. I could have maybe used the titles. Just read until you get to the good part, <laughs> and then stop. Why don't you tell them our spoiler policy? Our spoiler policy is very simply that I have not read these books. Liz has. Therefore, we will not spoil anything after Chapter 3 of The Lies of Loch Lamora. Boom. Boom. You've been unspoiled. And in this book, it's really... um Really important to avoid spoilers if you're reading along with us. We're going to try really hard not to spoil anything for you or to have anything in any of our social media comments that spoil things for you because the plot twists in this book are... Are they twisty? They're twisty. Are they highly braided? I'm talking Yillish story knot braided. Whoa. That's twisty. All right, so do you want to talk to us a little bit about uh, interlude number two? Right, so just as kind of an overview, and it is a little confusing to try and differentiate between the interludes, but at the end of our last interlude, um, Locke had been our, our t- titular character. What? Locke Lamora. <laughs> say titular again. Titular. It's been a while since we've had the, uh, say that one again. Titular. <laughs> Go ahead. So Locke is our our, our so main character. Juvenile. <laughs> so juvenile. That's why I like you. <laughs> so or listen, is that why you like me? I yeah, can't remember. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. See, listen, we have preteens over here and they have brought us down to their <laughs> level. No, they haven't. <laughs> anyway. Last episode, we ta- we met our, our main characters. Locke is a an orphan thief savant, and he has been sold into the gang called the Gentleman Bastards, which is headed up by Chains. And Two Chains. He was sold um, on the cusp of having, almost having to be killed because apparently he did something in his old gang, which was so bad 
that his his garista, his gang leader, had to go and pay for the privilege of killing him. Instead, he sold him to chains. And we, we kind of cut off at an exciting part of their conversation where Chains was about to explain to him what he did wrong and how he ended up getting his friends killed. So in this chapter, we sort of pick up right in that conversation and Chains explains to him what he did wrong and he sets out some rules and guidelines for Locke uh, if he wants to join the gang and then we meet some of the other main characters of the gang and, and just get an introduction to them. So in the last interlude, we ended with Chains saying all your friends who helped you are going to be killed. And this interlude begins with Locke's reaction and him saying, what, what are you talking about? So that's sort of where that cutoff is. Right. And last interlude, we had Locke telling the story to Chains of what he did to get these two other orphans in his gang killed. He had set them up so that it would look like they were taking money from the city watch. And he had hoped that they would then get get beaten up or, or something because these kids were bullying him. Chains explains to him exactly how he failed to control the situation. And right away you have Chains talking to Locke, who is at this time no older than eight, but he yeah. really talks to him like an adult. And he's explaining to him, uh, you know, it, it's not that you tried to screw someone over. It's that you didn't control the situation. Didn't because, think through the consequences. Didn't think through the consequences. You know, first of all, he didn't realize that taking coin from the city watch is a killing offense, no exceptions. And in this town, again, it's emphasized how the government, the police force, and the criminal underworld are tightly linked. It is a... It's a, almost like Baltimore. Oh, so sad. It's a it's like Baltimore on steroids. It's so it's Detroit. The, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking the archetypal corrupt society in, in this book. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Really. It's this is this rotten ecosystem. Everyone from the nobles down to Capo Barsavi, who is the kind of the the Lord of the Thieves. They're all hand in glove. So we don't take coin from the watch. You know, they take our coin is what he said. Um, he also had set him up with too much money, and um, he involved people who weren't supposed to be involved. And in in doing so, he ended up getting all of his friends who helped him with his scheme killed. And at this point, Locke gets really angry, and less so probably for the, for the children that he had killed, and more so that it's being pointed out that he's not as smart as he, think he thinks he is. Yeah, we get to see Locke throw a little bit of a tantrum here. You know, he says, what? I already admitted it, didn't I? And he throws a lantern up in the air, and James is like, what did that lantern ever do to you? <laughs> yeah. But this is the point at which, and I kind of noticed it last time as well, that Scott Lynch, I don't feel like, does a great job of writing a young, young child. You know, and most authors don't do a great job of writing a really, really young child. They tend to write them much older than what they actually intend them to be. And they make them childlike by trying to act petulant in some way. But sometimes it comes across well, sometimes it doesn't. I feel like this is the the one part where I've been like, eh, it doesn't really feel all that true to life. Maybe it's just because I'm surrounded by children of this age. So 
So I, I have a little bit of expertise in that area. So I don't believe Scott Lynch has children. I don't know, but I don't believe that he does. And that's just the one sort of criticism I've had so far. He's not the only fantasy author, by the way, who suffers from this. My favorite author, George R. R. Martin, doesn't always do a great job of writing young, young children either. So far, I think Patrick Rothfuss has done the best job of it in writing young quoth. So that is a very interesting observation. I can't fully address it at this point, Mm. but I think that you should put a pin in it until much, much later. Okay. Just, I just want you to remember that you said and thought that. So Chains lays it out there to Locke, what he did wrong. Locke gets angry, and then we get a little bit of confirmation about something we speculated about last week, and I think we had a little bit of conversation with some listeners about it, about why did the thief maker sell Locke to Chains and not sell the other children? Yeah. Why do all the other children in the gang who saw the white iron coin have to get killed when Locke does not. And there was some speculation about that. But here it's confirmed that it really is just as straightforward as Locke being as gifted as he is, has a tiny bit of value. And so it's kind of confirmed that what the thief maker does, he lives in this graveyard, he scoops up orphans, who otherwise would go to slavers, and he trains them to be pickpockets. He teaches them how to fit in with what they call the right people of Camor. Um, what are the signs? What are the different gangs? How do you kind of do different things? And then the gangs recruit from him. Mm-hmm. So they might come to him and say, I need a, a, a window girl. I need a, a coat charmer. I need this. And he sells them. So, you know, Locke's friends that he involved in his scheme weren't ready to be recruited by the gangs. Nobody wanted them. He wasn't willing to sell them to slavers. And so he couldn't keep them around. You know, and Chains points out that the thief maker rules by fear. He easily could be overwhelmed and beaten to a bloody pulp, the number of kids that he has surrounding him. Yeah. And if anyone shows him up, that's all gone. And it's interesting that that when he brings that up to Locke, Locke says, I never thought about it. Like, it never crossed his mind that they could all gang up on the thief maker if they wanted to. Just didn't even cross his mind. Right. So it's very important to change that before he brings Locke into his gang, that he understands what consequences are. And then he understands what he did wrong. And that he's willing to make a sacrifice. And so here we hear about the concept of a death offering. And so we talked a little bit last week about how Chains is an initiate of the nameless 13th God, who is the God of Thieves. And we really get to see in this conversation how devout he is to the nameless God. And everything he does is framed in his devotion to this, to his religion. Yeah, and that wasn't really clear last time. Last time, you know, I I would have speculated that it was not something he was really devoted to. It was a convenient excuse for him to just be, you know, the rapscallion that he wants to be. But we get to see that that's not really the case. We also get, albeit a very twisted sense of morality, we get a little bit of of the sense of morality that even the thief maker has. That while he's willing to kill children, he's not willing to sell them into sex slavery. You know, that's... It's something, I guess. Right. <laughs> it's something. So among the the initiates of the 13th God and among the thieves in general, 
in this world, they do something called a death offering, where if you lose someone close to you, you have to steal something important and then throw it away. And so Chains tells Locke that he wants him to give a death offering of a thousand crowns for each child who was killed. And Locke is rightly like, what? That's, That's a insane. lot of scratch. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of dough. That's a lot of whoopie pies right there. It's crazy. You know what it, it makes me think is if I ever have to come to the world of Kamor, I want to be a salvage diver because apparently they... They're always dumping a bag of a thousand crowns into the sea. It's too many sharks. Yeah, there's some badass <laughs> sharks. Sea demons. Yeah, okay. Amazons with spears. I'm not worried about Stay that. Stay out of the water. <laughs> I bet you're not. <laughs> not worried about them. <laughs> so anyway, Chains really kind of starts going into um, the importance of the fact that they are thieves, not murderers. Mm-hmm. And he makes a very important distinction there. And when he talks about making the death offering, he says, and Locke kind of is like, what, what, what? And he says, they weren't that close of friends. And uh, Chain says, oh, yes, they were. They were your very close friends because they are the ones who are going to teach you what you need to learn to survive. And that's how to be circumspect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he also says, this is something you owe them before the gods. Like, you are responsible for their deaths. And, and so is. it's just an interesting, you know, to kind of look at Chain's moral compass, you know, and he says, it's one thing to kill in a duel, to kill in self-defense, to even to kill for vengeance, but it's another thing to, to kill someone simply because you're careless. I just think it's so interesting that you have this character right off the bat who's a thief. He's a con man. But in a way, he has a straighter moral compass than all of the nobles of the city who profess faith to the gods of like charity and whatever. As crooked as that moral compass may be. Right. But in a way, I think it's straighter because at least he's got his, he knows where he's pointed. He has an ethos. He has an ethos. He knows what he believes and he's, and he sticks to it. All these other guys who are like, oh, you know, they might drop some coins in the cauldron of Paralandro, but they're going to participate in slavery and corruption if it suits them. So his moral compass points like north by northwest. Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in the next section, Chains and Locke go into the Temple of the 13th and we get to look inside of the secret lair. We get to see that it's all kind of encapsulated in elder glass. And we get also a sense of kind of what it's like, what they have, where it all comes from, which is pretty interesting. And they begin to talk about, they begin to prepare for dinner. And Chains gives some interesting anecdotes to Locke. Right, so the lair of the gentleman bastards is super posh. Sweet. It's swank. They have a bitchin' light fixture, witchwood table. It's super nice. They put a church inside your church <laughs> so you could worship while you steal from a warship. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we Chains continues to talk more about his patron, and um, I think... One significant thing that he says is that uh, our patron has always sort of danced on the notion that austerity and piety go hand in hand. And down here we show our appreciation for things by appreciating. <laughs> and so they've got all the nicest stuff. And Locke is just like agog at everything. Oh, yeah. 
And Chains was kind of a badass. You know, we hear a couple of stories from his stealing days and uh, about uh, being on a nobleman's galley and pissed off at him. And he stole his table and his chairs and his carpets and his tapestries and all of his clothes, but left the money. Well, and he dumped all, all but the table in the ocean. So he didn't even take it for his own gain. He just stole it just to piss him off. <laughs> That's pretty badass. It's pretty badass. I like that. Crooked and though so his compass may be. He's, I, I'm calling it straight. North by Northwest. North by Northwest. <laughs> he starts to educate Locke, though, right away on place settings. He's handing him the china and he's telling him, you know, if you were eating with a noble family, this would be called this setting. And, and he says, now you're a gentleman bastard. Emphasis on gentlemen. <laughs> and he talks to him about how one day Locke is going to be able to go and eat with all the Richie Richardsons and nobody's going to know that he's not one of them. And Locke is like, why would we want to do that? <laughs> but Chains explains that he's he's building him up. He's building all of them up to be a new kind of thief. So we get a little bit of confirmation of something we speculated on before that there's no such thing as con men. Like this is... Chains, at least in this world, is is kind of one of the first, or at least it's not something widely done. It's a new type of crime. New type of crime. And that's why the nobles ain't prepared. They ain't prepared for it. They don't know You've what's going to hit them. been struck by a new criminal. That was, <laughs> that was great. It was awesome. It was great. Yeah, it was. So they have dinner. Mm-hmm. Okay, how do you feel about, like, uh, fantasy books that have descriptions of food, big, long descriptions well, of food. Well, I have read A Song of Ice and Fire several times, so clearly it doesn't put me off. <laughs> right. Well, this is nowhere near George R. R. Martin no, level of descriptions no, no, no. of food. It's, but I like it, because I like food. <laughs> and I like reading it and be like, mmm, that sounds good. <laughs> Are you okay, Annie? <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, so in section three, they pray before they eat, and they pray for Sabbatha. And there was one part in here that I found was, was sort of interesting, and it was kind of juxtaposing what you see at Shades Hill versus what you see here in the church within inside the church. So at Shades Hill, what are you laughing at? I'm sorry. Is the, the church, you know, church just... Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> so at Shades Hill, they had to steal before they would be allowed to eat. And here in the church within the church, you have to learn something before you're allowed to eat. And it just shows Ooh. the different levels of sophistication that these two gangs have. And it also speaks a little bit to what we spoke about last time, the idea that Chains is going to take more of a parental role, and he sees himself in more of a parental role where that was not at all what the thief maker was about. I business. like that. That's a really good observation. Well, thank you. Nice comparison. You've been hit by a smooth criminal. I'm having a thriller of a night. Ah! <laughs> that joke was so bad, you're going to need to go upstairs and look at the man in the mirror. <laughs> So I loved the banter at dinner and Callow and, and Galdo are, are some of my favorite characters. 
Um, I, I loved how um, when Chains prayed for Sabatha, they prayed that maybe we could have her back a little less crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. And uh, when they welcome Locke to the Gentleman Bastards, they say, also say, you should have chosen death. I <laughs> right, that that I enjoyed. You did give him that option, right? <laughs> you chose poorly. And then Chains replies to them, if this poor little creature lives a year, you two will be his dancing monkeys. That's right, yeah. So when they say we'd like to have Sabatha back, but just a little less crazy, does that imply that she's going to be the manic pixie dream love interest? I can neither confirm nor deny. The presence of said manic pixie? The the presence of said manic pixie. She could be a manic Rubenesque dream girl. She could. You don't know. We've had those. We've had those. We like them. We do. That's right. They're just like the manic pixie dream girl, only chunkier and slightly less flaky. And funkier. It's like a croissant versus a biscuit. Mmm. Just saying. I like them both. <laughs> We're hungry. I like bread. <laughs> Bring me more bread. All right. Are you ready to get to chapter three? Why are you apologizing? <laughs> I don't know where that biscuit thing came from. <laughs> That's okay. We do not have to vet the things that come out of our mouths. We can say whatever the hell we want. This is our podcast. We're in a dirty basement, goddammit. This environment is definitely setting us off just a little. Shh, it's, was... it's a little weird. Great. This is the dirty... This is. The... The dirty episode. <laughs> Listen, the standards are just going to have to be lower for this episode, right? There's boilers going off in the background. Every time anybody flushes the commode, you can hear it. I don't know if it's coming through the mics, but if it is, I'm leaving that shit. Oh, you said commode. Can I also point out that we made it through the interlude? Without either of us saying interlube. That's a that's an improvement. That's an improvement. It is. You know, you gotta you gotta celebrate the wins where you get them. Well, we're we're experienced podcasters now. <laughs> we are very professional. Let's talk about chapter three. You can tell by our gorgeous studio. <laughs> Listen, we we need you to donate to our Patreon account so that we that can that we don't have that we don't have so we can keep this studio up look this studio is not cheap like if if you want quality podcasting people you got to get up off it <laughs> make me snarf my hot cocoa <laughs> here oh. at the capri sun podcasting network <laughs> we have standards <laughs> god damn it and those standards don't come cheap <laughs> for a $5 na- donation what do they get this bag of marshmallows. <laughs> Half a bag of marshmallows. <laughs> this bag that used to hold marshmallows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is what happens when we podcast after 10.30 p.m. <laughs> so chapter three. Chapter three. Tell us about it. Uh, what happened? <laughs> what book are we reading again? <laughs> No, I got it. I got it. I got it. So chapter three is where we, it's all about the third touch for Don Salvara and how they manipulate that. And in typical fashion, where the interludes tend to go chronologically, 
Actually, the the prologue didn't go chronologically, but the interlude so far have. The chapters have jumped around, and this does the same thing, where it starts off kind of in the middle of the action, and then it backs up a little bit and sets it up for you until it finally kind of comes to a climax. And again, I think Scott Lynch does this so masterfully where he's able to use this jumping around in time to build the tension, but it doesn't ever feel like a cheap shot. Yeah, I think so far that's, from just a pure writing standpoint, that's probably been my favorite thing that he's done so far. The other thing being, like I said last time, where sort of the language that people use kind of echoes the society at large. But this is probably the most obvious thing that he does. And yeah, I like it. I like the way it jumps around. So we open in Don Salvara's study. And he is surprised by some masked men who are in his study at midnight. And apparently they are Midnighters. The Midnighters. The Midnighters. Apparently some sort of emo punk band. (laughs) Well, they've got to come up with a better name. There's some sort of secret police. And they they tell him that they're there to inform him that Lucas Fairright is actually the Thorn of Camor. The Thorn of Camor. Dun, dun, dun. And we're like, what? The Thorn the of Thorn what? The Thorn of Camor. Who are these people who are ratting out our protagonist? Our only slightly crooked heroes. <laughs> Locke's a little more crooked, I'm just saying. And then we cut away. And we cut to a scene in the church within a church. <laughs> where Locke and his gang are sitting around. And this is probably one of my favorite scenes in the book. Can we jump back for a second? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... This is the point, because, of course, you've read this. I haven't read it. So when the dudes show up, you know, the Midnighters, I'm like, oh, no. Somebody is already ratting these guys out. Like, we already know that there's some counter force out there that's, like, already hip to what's going on. I was like, this is probably a little too early in the story for this to be going on. And as we're reading it, I'm thinking... Could this be a setup? Could this actually be them? You thought in that disguise? that early? I did. But then I dismissed it. I was like, nah. And so when we ended this section, I was mostly convinced that this was a legit bust. I'm still really impressed that you picked up anything like that because I was flabbergasted. Well, when I it was think revealed. you read so fast that you tend to just kind of go with it. Whereas I read so slow, I have time to think about that stuff. That's true. And this book in particular, I, because the plot moves so quickly and there are so many cliffhangers, the first time I read it was like, don't talk to me for 24 hours, Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Reading a book. And I did I did read it pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, st- I'm still impressed that you picked up on that. Well, thank you. It's because I'm a con artist. Dun, dun, dun. I'm not really a con artist. <laughs> Only in my dreams... You don't have time to be a con artist. It's true. I, I, <laughs> I don't. You're right. So section two is where we have, we jump back in time and we meet the gentleman bastards at the dinner that they're having back in the church within a church with all the gentleman bastards. Right. And we do jump back in time, but the way the narrative goes, it's not immediately evident that we've jumped back in time. Yeah, in fact, correct. it's a bit misleading because 
Section one ends with the Midnighter saying to the Don, have you ever heard of the Thorn of Camor? And then the next line is something like Locke is raising his glass. So you're almost led to believe that it's happening at the same time. And that's what I thought. And that and that made me, when I read that part, I was like, oh no, they are going to get busted. So whatever kind of suspicion I had was kind of erased when I got to this part. I was like, oh damn. Because like you said, I didn't realize they were jumping back in time at that point. But uh, I was starting to, to expound before on how much I love this scene. Because it, it really is, this is the scene that, not that I wasn't into the book up until now, but just hooked me on these characters. So they're going around the table and they're having this toast. E- each one says, stands up the one stands up and says, I steal because uh, my, my poor family needs it to live. And they all go, liar! liar! And I steal because I fell in with the wrong crowd. And they all go, liar! And at the end, and this is all with an air of ritual, the youngest uh, member, Bug, stands up and says, I steal because it's heaps of fucking fun. And they all say, bastard! bastard! And um, it just like... It just makes me happy. You know what this is This is like? It's the story of tonight of this. Yes. Uh, you know, of this uh, novel so far. It's the walk back from Imre, half drunk with your friends. Yep. Yes, you definitely get that vibe um, from this from this scene. And then, and then we find out that at this point in the story, that Chains is no longer with them. Yes. Because Locke pours a glass in air to Chains, and they talk about how they miss him. Mm-hmm. And we find out that Bug, who was the youngest member of the group, never actually never met him. Never got to meet him. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's a, that's a little sad. And we have another important revelation, which is that Sabatha is the love interest. She is. And Locke is a jilted lover. He is... He's not over it. He ain't over it. He ain't over it. He ain't. No, he ain't over it. So, yeah. So we, we find out that Sabatha, who we still have yet to meet, Locke doesn't want to pour a glass for her. And, and the rest of the gang kind of holds him accountable to it. And then she's someone that's important to them. And in fact, I think they remind him that she was a member of their gang before he even was. And finally, he kind of grudgingly pours her like a tiny glass. And he's like, fine. But you can all burn in hell. Yeah, and so he's the new garista, and so he's the new leader, and it kind of reminds me of the situation with Hellboy, and is it Elizabeth? Is that the character? Yeah, Liz. Liz, yeah. Uh, Liz is the character who, you know, they grew up together, they're kind of this out, you know, these outsiders together, they're in this fringe society together, they spend all this time together, Hellboy is very much in love with her, and she's like... Dude, I would rather live in an insane asylum. <laughs> You're fucking driving me crazy. Back off a little bit, you know? And uh, that's vi- pretty much what it is, actually. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I'm not. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm putting Locke is like a very, very, very skinny version of Hellboy. That's incredibly astute, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like Hellboy. So back in the Don's study. Ed, the Don is vehemently protesting that the Thorn of Camor is a myth. It's an urban legend. And he cites the secret peace as a reason that the Thorn can't exist. Mm-hmm. And you know about that secret peace. You know about it. And uh, he says, you know, the other thieves would never allow it because we have, an, we have an agreement with the thieves. They don't rob us. They only rob the people in the middle or each other. 
and we don't kill them. That's the gist of the secret piece, mm-hmm. according to my understanding. Sounds about right. We also get a sense that the Don has an understanding of the basic tenets of logic because they say he appeared to be what you wanted him to be, so therefore he couldn't be what you thought he was. And the Don's like, no, 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 I'm not falling for that bullshit. You're going to have to give me a little more than that. By that description, everything I see could potentially be false. That doesn't make any goddamn sense. Right. You know, the Don's not stupid. No, he's and not I stupid. like that. He's yeah. not. Um, so far, he's been set up as like the main, the, the patsy. Absolutely. The main dupe. But he's not. He's not stupid. And in fact, up against anyone but Lock Lamora probably would handle himself very well. So he's an interesting character. And we get to hear some of Locke's exploits. The Midnighter starts telling the Don about all the different uh, ways that the Thorn of Camor has conned these other families. Yeah, and at this point, I'm still like, wow, they know so much about him. Right. That, <laughs> that bitch with all the black clothes that's been following him has been giving him all kinds of information. She must have really big ears. <laughs> She's a PYT. She's a pretty young thing. <laughs> did you think that the sh- at this point you still you th- still thought that the shadow following him was yeah. maybe connected to the Midnighters? Sure. Absolutely. So one thing that I found interesting in this one was, and, and really not until this time around did I kind of stop and think about this. The Midnighter tells the Don that the Thorn of Camor has stolen over 40,000 crowns in the last few years. Now, we know that the Don, when he was talking about giving 25,000 crowns to Lucas Fairright, that he was talking about over half of his fortune. Yeah. So right here, we find out that the gentleman bastards are as rich as the Don. They have more money than him. Yeah. You know, it's not about the money for them. They are just they just do this because it's what they do. Yeah, because, you know, they get to have fun dinners and chant liar and bastard. It's way more fun. I mean, it sounds awesome. It does, doesn't it? Way better than being a Don. Right? Who wants that? Although, although, there is a kick-ass pleasure barge with a built-in orchard. (laughs) You really like that barge, huh? Fuck yeah. That's the (laughs) shit, man. That is awesome. I'm going to walk out on my pleasure barge and pluck my own cinnamon lemon? Fuck that. That's fuck you money right there. That is fuck you money right there. That's what that is. So the Midnighters charge the Don to cooperate with the Thorn so that they can track him. They tell him to just do whatever he says so that we can reel him in and eventually catch him. And the Duke will compensate you Mm -hmm. for anything that you might lose. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, the Duke doesn't know shit about this. (laughs) At least we don't think he does. Uh, Unless there's something else going on. I'm reading your eyeballs. You can't read them. No matter how many air quotes you throw up there. You're right. Because I'm blind. And you are too far away for me to read your eyeballs. So this is the part where I realized, oh, this is Locke Oh, when they're like, so give him everything he wants. No, no, actually not that. It was when, so the part where I realized that this was the Gentleman Bastards is when they started talking about they started going back and forth with the Don, and the Don said, but he was recognized on the streets. And they were like, yes, he's been here for years, and he's established relationships. Mm. But he was able to, well, but yes, because he's got all these bank accounts already. And I was like, but we know that's not true. So 
either these guys are completely mistaken, but I, at that point I got the vibe. I was like, no, mm-hmm. they're setting him up. Mm-hmm. This is this is Locke and Callow or Gallo and somebody. Mm-hmm. Wasn't sure at that point who it was, right? But I knew it was the gentleman bastards at right. that point. I actually thought at this point that it was two other characters that we hadn't met yet who mm-hmm. were on their behalf. Mm-hmm. But of course, after this, we find out the truth. Right. So back under the temple of Paralandro in the church within a church. The church within a church. So we get a peek at the wardrobe, which is a good bit of their lair is devoted to their various disguises. Yeah. And it kind of gave me the tingles. I'm not going to nah. lie. <laughs> You're like... I want summer weight and winter weight clothing. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I want breeches with dried blood stains on them. I do. Right? As long as they have pockets. Exactly. <laughs> so Who it's wears amazing. the pants with pockets in this house? <sighs> I only have those lame half pockets. That's not cool. Because I have a vagina. It's not cool, man. It's not cool. This is where the patriarchy has really fucked us. I know. We can't do our pocket rant again. Oh, we've been down that road? Oh, so many times. Oh, okay, well. <laughs> old hat. We Sorry, won't. guys. We won't do that again. So what I found really amazing about this scene is just the, the care and the work that they put into their craft. Um, I mean, they have obviously spent countless, countless hours perfecting this, building this wardrobe, the way that they're able to just alter the clothes and, and they dye Locke's hair and they give him a scar and they, they are able to completely disguise him. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I was thinking when they're going through the whole thing and they're sort of like, ah, try this, try that, you know, about the disguise. And I'm th- and he's like, I'm probably going to have to wear this disguise two or three times, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, y'all motherfuckers better be taking notes because if you accidentally put the scar on the other cheek next time, you're fucked. Like, that's what I kept thinking. I was like, is Bug back there writing notes? Somebody drawing a sketch? Where's a camera? We need a picture of this. Well, and I love that during this, they're also having like nerdy book talk. They're like talking about what are you reading? And oh, that's a, that's a cheesy uh, romance. And he's dribble. like, no, it's, you know, it's a commentary on such and such. And they're like, whatever. And, and I'm like, this is just my kind of gang. Well, we should pay attention to those names and see if they come back around at some point later. Right. Well, yeah. They also mentioned someone named Jessaline. Yeah. The black apothecary, who just sounds kind of cool. Who has a weird sense of humor and likes to make orange-scented hair pumice. <laughs> well, I like the story about how they needed a knockout candle, yeah. and she gave them a beef-scented one, and that brought every cat in the town running to them, and the dogs and cats of the town kind of chased them out. But we find out, again, it's this, I love the... Um, the kind of low key fantasy element that's in this book. So we've got like alchemy, we've got alchemical botany and and the supernatural elements are all very scientifically grounded. Yeah, they're all fairly minor. So far this is kind of a low magic world to this point. But there is there are some things they're able to do that we're not able to do and they're they're explained mostly by alchemy. So we also find out that the fake Midnighter sigil, which isn't even an exact replica, but just a pretty good guess, it was more expensive than the bottle of 502, which is, you know, we've already kind of learned, was very expensive expensive, Mm -hmm. and difficult to get. Yeah, my, you know, I'm going through this thought, this part here, and I've 
suspected that this was the Gentleman Bastards, and we get into this part, and we kind of confirm that it's the Gentleman Bastards who are setting this up. And at this point, I was sort of like, I wish they hadn't told us. You know, like, I wish they had kept that part a secret and didn't reveal it until later. So I could kind of keep, is it, is it not? But I don't know, obviously, how the rest of the story is going to go. So there may or may very well be a a very good reason for revealing it that early. But I was a little disappointed that it, that it got revealed so quickly. Just you wait. The twists there are coming. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the gang starts also debating uh, about someone named the spider, who is sort of the mythical spy master for the Duke. Of course he is. The name like the spider. Right. Might as well be in a 90s comic while you're at it. You don't name your son the spider if you don't want him to grow up. To be a supervillain, right? Exactly. Like, come here, Carlos, the spider Villanueva. (laughs) Who knew he was going to grow up to be such an evil bastard? (laughs) Oh, little baby, the spider, you're so cute. We only, we fed him flies. <laughs> so uh, some of the gang thinks that the spider is not real. Some of them do. Eh, only Bug thinks he's not real. Some of the gang thinks he's not real. <laughs> some of them do. Okay, fair point. <laughs> I can't argue math. And we find out that when the spider kills someone, the poor bastard falls off the face of the earth and nobody says a word. And even if Kappa Barsavi did know about it, he sure as shit wouldn't say anything. So this person is really kind of almost almost the, the most powerful person in Camor. Yeah. Because we also find that Kappa Barsavi kind of looks down on the Duke a little bit. He, he yeah. doesn't really respect him. He's kind of in charge. and uh, But he's afraid of the spider. Everybody afraid of that spider. So now, what does it say about you if you name your child the Grey King? You're a pussy. (laughs) At least call him the spider. God, have some balls. (laughs) Well, we were like, we're down to, we're down to Ryan, (laughs) Caleb, and the spider. (laughs) Damn it, we need to have another kid. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) What are you thinking for a middle name? (laughs) The Spider Jacob Villanueva. (laughs) Just kind of rolls off the tongue. It does. (laughs) So what do you think about the Grey King? He's been mentioned twice now? This is the only mention. This is the only mention. Once now? Once now. So you're saying he's going to be mentioned again? Can neither confirm nor deny. I think the Grey King is a pussy. I'm not trying to say anything negative about pussies, by the way. Right? I happen to like them. So, I mean, he's going to be a great person. <laughs> a little hairy. No, I really don't. Uh, at this point, we he's been mentioned one time, and he's like, and Locke is like, whatever. Kappa Barsavi's going to deal with that. He's a dead man walking. Which means one of two things. Either... He's going to be some other patsy and he's going to quickly get a knife in his back and, you know, we're not going to have to worry too much about it. Or the whole plot's going to revolve around him. So which do you think it is? Uh, I think the whole plot's going to revolve around him. 
So what I was really amazed at in this scene is the fact that we find out that Locke was the one who was talking to the Don the whole time. You know, and for me, at the beginning of the scene, you, you realize, oh, wait, it was the gentleman bastards who were talking to him. But I thought for sure it was Callow or Galdo or one of the others. And if Locke was there, maybe he was the one that stood in the back with the mask over his face. Yeah, I thought that, too. So that just shows you Locke's acting and ability. Yeah, absolutely. His his ability to change his posture and his voice and all of that. Yeah. And it's then ballsy as hell. It is ballsy as hell because you just spent an entire day with these people yeah, on absolutely. their pleasure barge. You absolutely, know? Yeah. And the fact that they didn't recognize him. Well, he looks like nothing. He does look like nothing. He looks like Gary Oldman. So is he <laughs> damn it. Listen, in my fictional harem, Gary Oldman's in the top five. <laughs> it's a compliment. He disappears into his roles. All right. <laughs> So the next uh, section, though, opens with Locke's kind of internal, a little bit, not internal dialogue, but kind of his perspective of what happens when he becomes another character. And so, he, he you know, it's just interesting to, to look at that. And I liked that transition there. And it, it made me think of some of the stuff in Patrick Rothfuss's uh, work where Quoth talks about, you know, where he will put on another character and put on another person. But mm-hmm. with Locke, it's almost to another level. You know, he actually becomes this other person. And it says that Locke Lamora just becomes a shadow in his own mind. Yeah. And he fully inhabits he, this yeah, midnighter. He had to become the attitude. He had to, he had to, to not pretend he had to be it. Otherwise, you know, nobody would believe the level of arrogance that he would have to have to actually act like a midnighter. Yeah. So I think he's a, you know, probably a better actor than Quoth, which is saying something. Well, I mean, I think that definitely this is a character who all of his time, all of his energy, all of his attention is put into these schemes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's an incredible amount of time and energy. And he doesn't have YouTube videos to sit and watch to try to pick up his Christopher Walken voice. He's got to do it on his own. Not that any of us have ever done that. No, not successfully. And I, I like the part at the end where he's leaving the Don and uh, the Don asks, well, what, what about my wife? And he and he's kind of yeah. like cruelly is like, well, you're going to have to be the one to tell her about this. Yeah. You can involve her, but I'm going to leave the task of telling her to you. <laughs> <laughs> so then we jump back. You know, again. she's a spider, right? What? You know, she's the spider, right? Is she? Yeah. Donna, the spider, Sophia. Donia, the spider, Elizabeth. Villanueva. <laughs> I'm not saying anything negative about the Villanueva family. I, I, okay. It's just fun to say. It is fun to say. So we jump back in time again to Locke and Callow actually breaking into the house, yeah. which is a bit confusing because, it, it, you know, for me at least, um, it almost seems like, like the scene is taking place when they're leaving and are they breaking into another place? But then we realize pretty quickly that they're they're This is them actually breaking into the Don's place. And um, they really use like the darkness and their dark clothes and their sort of like uh, showmanship yeah. to bully their way past a couple of guards. I was never here. And um, I have, I see through you plans within plans. We see a threat in House Atreides. Nice. Paul. 
I'm done. I'm done. You can see it. go on now. I'll never interrupt a Dune reference. Ah. <laughs> you can just keep going with that shit. <laughs> That's hot. So they they break into this posh neighborhood, the Alsa Grande district. And uh, I wrote down a quote. What, you know, he's talking about this neighborhood. And he says, uh, here the merchants and the money changers and the shipbrokers looked down comfortably on the rest of the city. And here the lesser nobility looked up covetously at the towers of the five families who ruled them all. And this is another really important theme in the book. You know, the fact that power and wealth only breed dissatisfaction and and, and a greed and, and lust for more power. When all that power and money is so tightly concentrated and the inequality is so extreme. The um, the the quote. It's funny. I had a quote from this chapter as Ooh, well, along the same lines. But it says, "Slash doublets and polished breastplates. This year's fashion for rented thugs." Talking about the guards that some of the people that they pass, you know, and and these people. If if you saw somebody in a piece of artwork from you know, this time in our own history, you know, from the 16th century, and they were wearing slash doublets and a polished breastplate, you would think, oh, there's somebody who is upper class, who's a gentleman, you know, and he's saying, nope, just rented thugs. That's all they are. Yeah, I like that quote. And and again, we're going to keep coming back and back to the idea that the leadership and the nobility in this city are the true criminals. So there were two other things I liked in this section. The first was the crimper's hood that they used to knock out Conte. So that was a pretty cool device and not anything I'd ever seen before. And I thought, well, there's probably some sort of, there's probably some sort of truth historical basis for something like that. Oh, did you look it up? I did. Sweet. You know what I found? What? Not a damn thing. Really? At least not by that name. So... There may or probably has been something along those lines, but it wasn't called a crimper's hood, at least not according to Google. You go, Scott Lynch. Yeah, you came up with something. Being creative. Yeah, absolutely. Or finding something that we couldn't find in a... And renaming it. (laughs) Ten-minute Google search. (laughs) One or the other. Either way. Either way, it's a neat little device. Bravo. And I do love the, the thought that he puts into describing their craft. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. What One of the things, so... All right little glimpse into my twisted middle school, high school brain. Oh, so, yes. So you're not going to be stunned to hear I was a little bit of a Dungeons and Dragons nerd. <laughs> I may have memorized the Dungeon Master's Handbook. <laughs> I'm not stunned to hear that. I can still tell you that the attack dice for every weapon <laughs> in the player's handbook so still anyway thieves were always my favorite and the reason why they were always my favorite was because of all the cool shit you could do all the cool gadgets and kit that they had you know and like wizards were like a cop out and and fighters were boring thieves were where it was at baby but i never had a crimper's hood and now i really want to go play some D. &D. So anyway, the other thing I liked was I liked Conte. I mean, I liked he he was a badass. And I liked also that you showed how as 
as intelligent as these guys were, as bright as they were, as much as there are heroes, they are not pretending to be ADEM mercenaries. They're not yes. pretending to be warriors. They, you know, it's acknowledged in the open that if if they were on fair footing, two against one with Conte, it wouldn't even be close to a fair fight. He would kick their asses and he would kill them quickly. You know, so they're just going to do everything they can to make it as unfair of a fight as possible. And they still almost get their asses <laughs> kicked. Or, and, and Locke does get his ass kicked. Mm-hmm. You know, despite the guy being blinded, you know, having the ether bunny on top of him, he still almost kicks Locke's ass. I really like that, too. You know, you have these these guys who are just genius thieves, genius con artists. I, I'm glad that they're not also like master kung fu. Right. You can't be a ninja sex god wizard. Rock star. Rock star. Like. <laughs> not without some blowback. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can, but you're going to get called a Mary Sue. Yes, you at are. At least once. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So section seven, the final section. Right. So in section seven, we just kind of see Locke and Callow. They're walking away from their third touch with the Don and uh, Callow's being like, damn, I can't believe that worked. Right. I thought that was a stupid idea. He bought it. And I could see why he would think that was a stupid idea. Yeah, it made perfect sense to me. Like, But really, it is. I mean, here they've, they've go- gone ahead and circumvented the possibility that the Don is going to start to get suspicious. They yeah. don't even have to worry about that because they've already outed themselves as con artists. Yeah, it's brilliant. But also convinced the Don that he should do everything they want and that he's going to get reimbursed eventually. So that's pretty cool. So do you have anything else for Section 7? Well, just one thing. What's that? Because we haven't talked about the fluttering shadow that's been following these guys. I have and, some and we know why, why you don't want to talk about that. I don't particularly feel like bringing it up. <laughs> the but fluttering feel, shadow is... You feel as though you must. It, it is not Winona Ryder. Sadly. <laughs> Sadly. It is not a beautiful, petite, little, dark-haired love interest slash thief. But if you want to write some fanfic, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure Scott Lynch won't mind. Listen, I don't have time to write fanfic, but if I could get if I could get some, you know, voice to text translation, I could just dump the shit that's in my head and sell that shit on the market. Someone would read it. There is some crazy fanfic out there. Oh yeah. I'm a little sad about it. <laughs> so the, the the fluttering shape that has been following him is outed as a bird. Well, it's something Pretty with clear. wings. Or yeah. winged. Could be winged Winona Ryder. We don't know. <laughs> Do you need a minute? I might. <laughs> a black winged Winona Ryder. Take a minute. Raven winged Raven Trust. It's okay. No, it's all good. It's all good. So yeah, the black shape swoops from rooftop to rooftop and then soars on wings up into the gray clouds. And I'm like, ain't no bitch I ever known done that. (laughs) So yeah, it's clearly not human. Right. It's clearly not human. So what do you think's going on there? So that's actually my my prediction. So we're, we're ready for predictions now. Do you have anything else before we get to that? Nope. Okay, so 
clearly it's not human. So I got a pretty tinfoil theory. Yes. I think the black shape is some sort of wizardly familiar or gentled bird being manipulated by some somebody to gather information on Loch Lamora. Hmm. We haven't really seen, I, I, I believe, all the different magical fantasy elements here. So we don't really know where the fantasy ends. You know, there could still be dragons for all I know. Probably not, but there could be. So we also don't know if there are wizards. We don't know any of that, right? We don't know if there's scrying devices or anything along those lines. So I'm going to say that this bird is somehow being used by somebody as a means of gathering information on them. I don't think that's too tinfoily. I think that's a, that's a pretty The good other guess. part of my prediction that kind of goes into that is that I believe that it's somebody, that it's being employed by somebody that the gentleman bastards have already pissed off. So that could be one of the other three noble families that they've that they've um, stolen from, or it could be the spider. But it's the Grey King. It's definitely the Grey King. It's all going to be about the Grey King. It's all about the Grey King. That's my onlyest prediction. Those are some nice predictions. I don't feel very confident. I didn't. This is not like the Denna is a Fae thing, which I was 100% right about. We'll just put a pin in that. I called that shit from the beginning. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot less predictions this time. I'm looking forward to when we get a little deeper in the book and there's more evidence that you can actually pull from. It's really difficult to come up with the, with the predictions this early in the book when every time you get a name dropped like the spider or the Grey King, it's the first time you've ever heard it and there hasn't really, really been any other evidence laid for it. Or at least not that I've been able to pick up on. So anyway, that's that. We do have some listener questions. Lay it on me. Okay. So, actually, all of our listener questions are from Theo. Theo at the OGB. Hey, Theo. So, he says, do you think that the Don or the Donia Silvara are the spider? Wow. Y'all are on a wavelength. I like it. I, I, I do not. You do not? Okay. Why uh, not, not that I don't like it. I actually thought that for a while as well. I mm -hmm. briefly had that same consideration. Mm -hmm. But I went back and I read, I read, the, at least not the Don. Mm -hmm. I'm convinced it's not the Don. Right. I'm not 100% convinced it's not the Donia. Mm -hmm. But but I, I'm going to say if I have to come down on it, I'm going to play the field. I don't think it's either of the two of them. Definitely not the Don. I went back and I reread the section where they first interact with the Don, where they surprise him in the in the den. I read it several times mm -hmm. to try to look for any sort of indication that, you know, anything I could see in his behavior, his demeanor. One thing I picked up on when I was doing that that I had not really paid that much attention to to this point is the perspective that, that Scott Lynch is that he uses. Mm -hmm. He uses a third person 
camera. For mm-hmm. a, there's another word for it, but he uses the point of view where you're not in anyone's head. Mm-hmm. You're in a camera from like a third impartial viewer. You get to you get to hear the words. You get to see what's happening, and you get this sort of third person's kind of take on if a person's nervous, et cetera, but you're never inside of anyone's head. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for that, but it's not there. And that's the first time I kind of really realized uh, so directly the kind of perspective that he's using. But he doesn't react in a way that I would th- expect him to react if he were the spider. And the other thing that leads me to believe that neither of them are the spider are the security status of the house. That if you're the spider, I'm imagining you're probably worried about assassination. You're probably not going to have a house that's so fucking easy to break into. So my take, and also they're both kind of young. So I'm going to say no. I don't, I don't think that's right. But it did cross my mind as well. That's a good point about their age. Because I think at one point we learned that the Don is only 24. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So that is a little young to be some kind of master spy master. I was definitely not mature enough to be a crime boss at 24. No. No, we're not necessarily talking cr- officially a crime boss, right? The spider is the head of the, head of the secret, secret police. police. Yeah, I guess that's a crime boss. I mean... It's an officially sanctioned crime boss. Right. There's a difference. Pirates are are privateers. There's a difference. Speaking of pirates, we'll bring that up later. Our conversation about the pirates. Oh, right. So his other question is, is the Grey King some sort of a joke title? No. The Grey King is where it all goes down. The Grey King is masterminding that beautiful black bird. And he's going to take a piece out of Loch Lamora's ass. The Grey King is Master Ash. <gasps> Get the fuck out. <laughs> That's a serious crossover. <laughs> and for the people who are joining us who have not read the King Killer Chronicles, what are you doing? <laughs> Go read the King Killer Chronicles. Read one with your left eye and one with your right eye. There you go. So read them both. So... His last question is, or really comment is, he says he loves the Tarantino-ness of the narrative, which... Yeah. Yeah, I agree with. That's a good That's a good word to describe it. Yeah, and it was Adam, I think, who said that he describes it as Oliver Twist meets Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. And yep. I think that's also an apt description. All right, so we have some, some other uh, listener interactions. Uh, from Facebook, we have... Uh, Susan King, who said uh, she'd love to read the Lies of Lock and Lamora, but she can't get it in West Virginia. I don't know who that is, but we also have uh, Ben Blankenship at BH Blankenship, who says, listening to the D&D podcast on the Lies of Lock Lamora by Scott Lynch, already bought all three books. Awesome. So, so we thank you for that. Listen to Nathan Hernandez, who is at Animation Nathan. That's a pretty cool handle. And he says, uh, this reminds me of the Elder Glass, and he had a picture of the Harbin International Ice and Snow Sculpture in China, which I learned a little mm-hmm. bit about. And it was a it's a recre- in China recreations of historic landmarks like the Acropolis and the Gates of the Forbidden City, all done in ice sculptures and then lit with a bunch of multicolored lights. Oh, cool! It's pretty brilliant, pretty cool to look at. Theo says, "Why does nobody ever pick?" safe word 
as their safe word. What? That should totally have been our safe word. It's still marmalade, but... Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's a good idea. (laughs) I feel like if somebody says safe word... (laughs) It's understood. It kind of gets the point across. (laughs) All right. Ian says, uh, Liza Locklamora, only $1.99 on Kindle if you want to read along with the Duke and Duchess. Now, by the time you listen to this, it's probably not going to be $1.99, but you should go get that shit anyway. It's a good book. It's a good book. Anne, but with an E, at Anne, A-N-B, and it's Anne, A-N-N-E, A-N-B, says, I will finish the lies of Locke Lamora this week, and then I will listen to the Duke and Duchess podcast. <laughs> you got to have your priorities straight. I think that's fair. I Just have- be prepared for the end. You're, you, there's no putting it down. I am stunned by the number of people who are reading along with us at our same pace. I am stunned by that as well. It's awesome. Because it's a glacially slow pace. And if I didn't have to do it for this podcast, there's no way in hell I would do it. Well, they may be reading other things as well. I'm sure they are. In fact, somebody said they're like, I have to get, I have to find a couple of other books to read. Right. (laughs) There's no way I can just read these two chapters and then wait a week. Right. You know, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I, by the way, I, there are other podcasts who do similar things that, to what we do. I am not reading along with you. Like I will read the book and then I will listen to your podcast. Well, and Hey, listeners who are reading other things, tell us what you're reading. Cause we need suggestions. Yeah, we do. Liz is out of books. I am not out of books, <laughs> but I, I need some to the list. The list has to stay long. I, I have like three series. I'm, How many books do you think you read an average year? I could not even. Nope. Like I, 80, 90 books? I don't know. <sighs> I mean, I don't know. Somebody asked me, they're like, what, is, what, is, uh, what does Liz think of this? And I was like, I was like, I think it's in her, probably in her like her top 10 or so. I said, but you have to realize that she's read everything. So that's saying something. I, I mean, I haven't. <laughs> Thank God. We'll jump off the roof. Well, we got to keep you in books then. <laughs> so uh, Chuck Spurlock says he thinks the Ironborn would destroy the vintage pirates because what is dead may never die. I fully agree. So to, to take a step back, we put a, a post up on the Duke and Duchess podcast page. And we should do that on the group page. I think that's a better place for those things. But... I thought I did put it on the group. No, nah, you put it on the fa- on the Facebook oh. page, but that's okay. We're using the Facebook page just for like announcements and stuff like that. So, but anyway, so the conversation was, who do you think would win, the Ironborn or the Vintage Pirates? Well, that started on Twitter. Oh, did it? Oh, I missed it. Okay. Oh, you missed it because um, apparently somewhere in the Carolinas, I think, mm-hmm. some guy is selling a fifty-five foot. Fully functional pirate ship Ooh. for fifteen thousand dollars. So, without your permission, I went ahead and asked Mandy of Caster Quest if she wanted to go halvesies on it. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and she said she would if they would take payment in children. 
And I said we had we some to two. spare. <laughs> and could buy uh, two boats. And I and then and C M Hayden jumped in and said that uh, and offered to go in as well. So we kind of got into it a little bit. So there. we can get like a timeshare pirate ship. Exactly. <laughs> what could be better? We'll sail. It, it has fr- cannons, Chad. We'll sail it from the Chesapeake Bay. We'll pick up C M Hayden. We'll get around. <laughs> you know, we'll go around into the Gulf, and then we'll come get Mandy. It's perfect. Makes perfect sense to me. We'll podcast all the way. Yeah, it'd be great. It'd be fantastic. Who wants to come? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, you've got to get on that Patreon and give us that money. <laughs> That's what we need the money for. We get need a pirate ship, you guys. Out of this basement and on that damn pirate ship. <laughs> what are you people doing with your money? <laughs> <laughs> but we started to get into that a little bit, whether we were going to be vintage pirates or ironborn. And uh, who would who would win in a fight there? And I think the consensus is that the Ironborn would would win in a fight. They have the Asher Greyjoy factor. Although I, I will say that CM Hayden did point out that if we were vintage pirates, all of our action would occur off screen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> That's a pretty good point. <laughs> now I totally missed that conversation. I wish I was in on that one. So in that conversation, the uh, Hoffman Art Gallery on Facebook said, undecided, on one hand, the Ironborn would be weakened by infighting, but the Vince might become overly superstitious if they see the Ironborn drowning and then being revived. It's true. It's true. It's very true. The Vince are superstitious. I think Asher Greyjoy would defeat them all in single combat. I think I think she would. Yeah, absolutely. So Hoffman Art Gallery also said, the podcast group is probably the best place to discuss pronunciation issues so when you wants to Are call we us get out into that no i have no desire to get into that <sighs> dob babalina said mr lynch now has a couple or three extra beans in his pocket thanks to the duke and duchess podcast nice. and look i have to tell you mr lynch <laughs> that we have sold perhaps tens of books <laughs> so you're like four dollars richer after the agent gets his cut you know, it's a fantastic book. This is really, I'm, I'm, every time I get into a reread, I'm always a little bit afraid that this is going to be the time that it's not as magical. And when it's a really good book, it's, every reread is more magical. So this is now my fourth or fifth time in this book. It's still just as magical for me. I'm still enjoying it just as much. Well, I can't wait to go read. <laughs> so we got a comment on the podcast from a gentleman by the name of Dave the Dummy, self-titled Dave the Dummy. I would mm-hmm. not call the man a dummy. I think he's I think he's really underestimating himself. But he left a nice comment on our podcast and I'm not going to read it because it's quite long mm-hmm. as podcast comments tend to go, but we thank you for that. We have we don't get a lot of traffic on the website. I mean, we get okay traffic on the website. But like a lot of podcasts, our website really serves as just a place for us to kind of put our podcast feed. Mm-hmm. It's not really a place where we do a lot of interacting with folks. So when we get those comments, they're always kind of a nice, pleasant surprise for us. And we also got one additional five-star review on iTunes. Awesome. It was an anonymous one, so we don't know who you are. But you know who you are, and we thank you. So that is all I have. Do you have anything else? Nope. Okay, you can find us on the Duke and Duchess Podcast dot com. That's our website. You can also find us on Twitter at the D N D Podcast. That is 
D is in Delta, N is in November, D is in Delta podcast. And on Facebook at The Duke and Duchess or on our Facebook podcast group, you're going to have to search for The Duke and Duchess podcast group, but that's a fun place to hang out with us. And it's a fun little conversation area, and you're not constricted by any character limits. So you go on and you rant till your heart is content. You do it. Nobody can tell you what to do. They can't hold you back. You go. We love your iTunes reviews, but what we love more than anything is word of mouth. So if you really love us, tell somebody. Pimp us out, yo. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Rain, a man, so his future drifts.